Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. In this episode, we talk about believing in Jewish and American values, and if America will be safe, a safe space for Jews in the future. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again Is Now. I am a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I emigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe. I am Phyllis Simpler Miller, the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, The Edge the Wedge. I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, a community of Jews that did not have any connection to the Holocaust. Our parents and grandparents had fled the Tsar and other pogroms at the turn of the 20th century, and yet, in 1970, only 25 years after the end of World War II and the Holocaust, my U.S. Army officer husband and I were stationed in Munich, Germany, and this changed our lives forever. Barry Wolf was born in Chicago, Illinois, as the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois at Chicago Circle. As a young man, he started out as an entrepreneur in the insurance industry. 45 years later, he sold his company, his last company, to a New York stock exchange company. Throughout his busy life, he served as president and officer in many Jewish nonprofit organizations and in his synagogue. He also supported various organizations in Israel and America, such as Shurat Hadin, that legally represents victims of Palestinian terror attacks, and organizations that counter anti-Israel narratives in the media. He currently serves as treasurer of the Israel Education Campus Organization Stand With Us and on the executive committee of the Valley APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. Barry, thank you for coming on our show. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. I get to ask the first question this time. As Evelyn said, you were born in Chicago, Russian immigrant parents, and you were raised in Chicago. What kind of Jewish life did you have growing up? You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the things that I remember, uh, I remember my bubby who lived across the porch in our apartment building where four families lived, four of our family, cousins, uncles. Uh, and Shabbos, uh, we'd all go walk across our porch because we were on the first floor and, and the second and third floor were uh, other families. And we basically, my grandmother would, my bubby would light the Shabbos candles and my grandfather would bless his grandchildren. Uh, that's what I remember. I remember uh, how my father and I sat around my grandfather's Passover table. Uh, it's really interesting. I recalled it as only men sitting around the table or boys. Uh, but my uh, female cousin, uh, Paulette, she says, I used to sit there too. So I'm assuming she was accurate. I don't know how old she was then, but uh, because it, I thought it was just males and the females <laughs> were, you know, in the other room or around the wall. Uh, I remember walking to shul with my uh, father and grandfather when we all lived together in the West Side. I, uh, and as we, when we moved to Albany Park, I remember walking to shul with my father. Uh, and sitting together in the back of the shul. Uh, I remember going to Hebrew school, and uh, my teacher's favorite expression is, you know, Shekhet uh, you know, because uh, as boys, we were always probably too loud. 
I remember also, uh, because my mother would speak about it, uh, her father uh, her father was killed in a car accident when she was very young, when she was four years old. And she spent uh, 15 years from the time she was four till she was 19 in, a, in the Jewish orphanage called Mark Nathan's home in Chicago. Uh, and uh, now she wasn't an orphan because her mother lived, but she had to work in a sweatshop. And because of that, she saw her mother once a month. But there were many children in Mark Nathan's home who had the same similar situations. So those are the things I remember. And my mother was always, I'll say, a little angry because of it, because she didn't have the love and warmth of a mother and a father. So, you know, those are the things that I do remember uh, as a child that's, that stand out to me. So you, you, you were raised in a, in a traditional yes. Jewish family. Yes, and I also I, I really believed, uh, even when I moved to uh, California uh, in 1972, that every Jewish family was celebrating Passover just the way we did. <laughs> of course, I learned a lot when I came here. <laughs> okay. Since I had very, to do teaching, it seemed like okay. Very. What anti-Semitic experiences did your family have? Yeah, my parents never expressed anti-Semitic experiences to me. Uh, but I do want to share when my when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I or, overheard my mother and my Aunt Isabel speaking about something. I says, you know, they weren't going to tell me what it was. What I learned was that when my father was eight years old, uh, my his mother was killed in a pogrom in Russia. Now, my grandfather's family owned uh, salt mines for over 200, 300 years. They had their own cemetery there. They were wealthy, obviously, uh, because they owned salt mines and they could pay off people so they lived safely. But uh, when I learned was that my father at eight with, my, with his cousin Jack had to shoot his way out from the back of a sled as my grandfather was leading the horses and family out of Russia to escape. And at eight years of age, he was shooting his way out. And uh, so that story I heard, so the story, is continues with my bubby was not really my father's mother, but really the woman who lived across the road, whose husband was killed in the same pogrom. And she had a daughter. And like a lot of Jews, they put a family together and they came to America. So my father never told me the story. I never heard my story again. And I was told by my mother and my aunt never to repeat it. Because while I never saw my father ever get angry, even angry with me, disappointed maybe a few times, but never really angry, uh, he never wanted us to hate. And I heard that throughout my life. Always respect the individual. And, uh, you know, that's what I remember. So for, as far as my parents, uh, that was the hate. And my mother, basically, uh, she didn't hate, it wasn't the anti-Semitism, because she was raised in an uh, and a, a Mark Nathan's home, a Jewish orphanage, who gave money to the, the place? It wasn't supported by the government. Those places were not supported by the government, whether they be Christian or Jewish. They were supported by the community. And because Jews in the community were giving money to the orphanage, those people who were giving money decided, I want the girls to learn this, I want the boys to do that, and that's the way it was. So it was a very, very strict upbringing she had. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily what she probably wanted as a young girl. So uh, it was very, very strict. Uh, and we'll probably talk about this later, but I think that uh, 
community involvement in, in things like uh, uh, boys' homes or girls' homes and charities in general are better off supported by individuals and community because then they feel it's their responsibility. And uh, they, they as individuals are making a, a difference, not the government. I think that's a right. big deal. Uh, and throughout Jewish history, I think that's been true. Okay. So that's in terms of anti-Semitism, um, there, your real grandmother was killed in yes. a pogrom. Yes. And my father was hiding under the floorboards of the house that they lived in. My uh, His mother told, told him to hide because he must have heard or she must have heard you know, the uh, the pogrom beginning to happen. I will, I will just say that my great-great-grandmother was killed in a pogrom in Romania, and my great-grandmother and her sister survived hiding in the hayloft. Right. So, my heart, you know... It sounds familiar to you. Yes. So, yes. talking about community, let's be on a cheerier subject. You have dedicated a lot of your time, talent, and resources designers and Jewish organizations. What motivates you and what motivates you to continue doing, uh, working so hard for Israel and other causes? Uh, what motivated me? Um, that's, let, let me maybe start out with, uh, when I was a boy, uh, I remember that, you know, first of all, I knew we didn't have money. I knew we were poor. Uh, I remember my mother saying to me once, uh, Barry, you're going to an overnight camp, a Jewish overnight camp. I think it was Camp Kinderland, in fact, in Wisconsin. And, you know, and, she, and I said, Mom, how can we afford it? She says, Barry, uh, there's someone who's donating money. And I remember running out of the apartment building and just looking out in the distance. I'm saying, there's somebody out there that doesn't know me, that doesn't know my family, that's supporting my going to an overnight camp. And I said, someday I want to be able to do the same thing. Uh, that had a lasting impact on me. Uh, I just, I, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I find that people who, who've done well in life, you know, forget where they came from. I've just never forgotten, you know, where I came from. Um, uh, you know, I learned those things. Uh, I, you know, I believe that, you know, I listen, I believe that... Uh, because I've always studied Jewish history and history in general, I've always, since since the time that I learned about my father, what, about 11 or 12 years of age, I've studied history saying, why do people hate? Why did they do what they did? Uh, and I believe, and I, one thing I've learned is that uh, Jewish values are American values. Uh, and I believe that, you know, I needed to support those things that are going to make a difference you know, in our world. And uh, that's why I've gotten involved. I was very, I was one of the original, by the way, not Jewish, but back in the late 70s, I was asked to be one of the founding board members of Big Sisters of Los Angeles. Because of my involvement, maybe in my own synagogue, they asked me to, and without going to specifics, but that was one of the few uh, non-Jewish organizations that I did support. And, uh, but I, I just felt that I had a responsibility uh, as a Jew, to make certain that I would be there for other people like somebody was there for me. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you see Jewish values fit American values? Yeah. You know, there's a book that I read. Uh, I've always believed that, in fact. Uh, and I can't say 
you know, uh, it was, I always read the, it said, but there was a book I read written by a man named Stephen Robb called The Founder's Speech in a Time of Crisis, which I read maybe in the last four, five, six months. And I heard him interviewed and I said, I just got to buy the book. I didn't know he was Jewish. And, uh, but, but what he did, he took speeches and writings of our different founders and a few others like Abraham Lincoln and other people. And what I found was that the, the speeches that they gave were from the Torah. And I, you've got to remember that, you know, up until not that long ago, until a hundred years ago, you know, maybe a little bit longer than that, people that went to university were studying the Bible, our Jewish Bible. Yes. So they had a grounding in 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 Jewish law and in, in the in the values uh that uh Judaism gave to our country. Uh, you know, the freedom of speech, uh, you know, judges, uh, you know, how many witnesses there had to be, you know, the responsibilities that we had, uh, you know, tzedek, you know, charity, justice. Uh, it, it just was amazing to me, the values that I find in our Torah that are American values. I look at America, I've always said this, that America is built on a Judeo-Christian foundation. And uh, and I still believe that, and I'll always believe that. I mean, the biggest concern, and I want to digress maybe a little bit. My grandson will be upset with me because I'm always digressing. But, you know, I look at Europe today, and, you know, you go to churches, and, and, and you see there's very few people going to, Christ, uh, going to churches. And because of that, it's become very secular, and man deserves, you know, man decides what the laws are going to be. I look at America, I worry about our losing our moral values because uh, our rabbis, our minister, our imams are not speaking about uh, our responsibilities, our moral responsibilities to, you know, and to be a light into the world, to be an example, you know, by our actions, by our beliefs. And, uh, you know, learning to make a living is one thing, but, you know, how we live our life, you know, do we, when we shake our hand with somebody and we're giving our word. How important is that? That's the way businessmen in the Jewish community used to do business. We didn't need contracts. All we needed was our words. Uh, that that brings me to, so is that something that influenced you to do be in the insurance industry as a career, this yeah. kind of idea of helping people being a safety net? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, one of the what I wanted to do, because I was kind of active in uh, politics as a young person, I wanted to, I think, go into politics. Uh, and I was going to go to law school and things like that. And one of my fraternity brothers in college said to me, uh, after he graduated and came back, was talking to me, he said, Barry, do you have family who owns a business? Do you have family in law? And because I was always an outspoken kind of person back in the 60s. And um and I said, no. He says, Barry, you're going to work for somebody the rest of your life. And because unless you're bringing in business to a law firm, you're you're not going to become a partner. You're not going to become a senior person. And, and I said, that wasn't for me. So I started interviewing other industries. Uh, and I found that Jews didn't necessarily, they may have gone to a training program, but they weren't going to climb the corporate ladder. Without speaking about companies, you had to be Irish to be climb the ladders in certain companies. And you couldn't be Jewish. And I learned that. But instead of complaining about it, I said, where could I be? And I saw this interview, you know, in the, in the insurance industry, and I learned that, you know, that my religion, my age, nothing mattered except for me, how hard I was willing to work and how good I was willing to be. And I was willing to put in the effort. So I started in the insurance business and 
my mother was very angry with me. She says, anybody could become an insurance salesman. And, but of course, you know, I ended up building a number of businesses, you know, a computer software, a little company and a pension administration company and uh, an insurance marketing organization. So, uh, you know, I, I, how did I do it? I said, because it gave me the opportunity to be what I wanted. I wanted to be independent because of jobs that I had, by the way, uh, before working in unions and, and you know, uh, in grocery stores, I didn't want to work in a union facility or, and I always wanted to become a teacher, but I didn't want to play the role of waiting my years in line in order to be getting raises and, uh, or, you know, being paid for what I should be, what I was worth. So the insurance industry allowed me to be my teacher because I think I did that throughout my life. And, uh, uh, you know, that's what I did. I'm not certain if I answered your question, Phyllis. You did. Thank you. Okay. You but, did, that, so, but, but did I provide, uh, you know, what, I did it because, yes, because I was always teaching. Because, uh, you know, people necessarily, no one wanted to speak about their own mortality and their planning for the future, planning right. for the next generation. And the Jewish expression, the door of the door, it's from generation to generation. So what values are we teaching? What values are we instilling in our children? And uh, people really don't think about it. And I mean, very successful people also didn't think about it. So I did that and I retired in 2008. If you look at the rising anti-Semitism in America and the rising hate against Israel, do the Jews in America have a safety net that is good enough, you feel? Uh, you know, I, I'm going to give you a Jewish answer. Yes and no. Uh, our, our nation's values, you know, uh, come from our Judeo-Christian system. You know, where is it? It's it's in our constitution. Uh, the writings between our nation's founders uh, are in the arguments. Uh, you know, you know, so it's there. I mean, it's right there for us. If uh, instead of talking about the pimples about America, the little things. Uh, and maybe to digress a little bit, people say, well, you know, America is a racist state. It's this and that. I'm just like, the world was either you were either a master or you were a slave. I mean, people forget, you know, what Pharaoh was the god of Egypt. And in Greece, yes, there were brilliant people, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. But the masses were slaves. They weren't middle class. They didn't own property. Rome, you were either a master or you were a slave. I mean, they, you had no rights you were given rights by the governments. Uh, America was a very special place. Our founders gave us a brilliant document. And, uh, you know, are there, or did we go, did we also say slavery was no good? Of course. But we said when our founders finally got finished with writing our constitution after 10 years, it didn't happen in, you know, 1776. <laughs> hey. uh, it, it did happen, but they said, okay, 20 years after, uh, 20 years after uh, this document is done, you know, slavery, international slavery will not be allowed. And the day, first day after the 20th year, slavery was, international slavery was not going to be allowed in North America. So did we have slavery? Yes. Did it, did it happen overnight? No. But nothing happens overnight. Everything is going to be a, a an evolution, not a revolution overnight. And uh, that's what America was. So I say that America does provide a safety net if we're willing to fight for it and speak about it and do what's got to be done to preserve it. Um, but no, I, I would also answer, and I'm answering no to that question because I don't think we have enough moral leadership. 
I find our rabbis, our priests, our, priests, our ministers, you know, are talking about climate change, <laughs> are talking about uh, global warming, are talking about the pimples of America. And, and, and the same thing is true about Israel, talking about the pimples. Forget about the good that America has been. How, you know, capitalism may not be perfect. And I don't have to quote, you know, people uh, like Winston Churchill who talked about, it, you know, America, you know, it may not be perfect, but it's the best that's ever existed in the world for individual liberty and individual freedom and individual opportunity, which is what America gave us, gave us as Jews. And while we had prejudices, uh, you know, we said we always, we were the people of the book. And I, I know I'm digressing. But we are people of the book. We were instilled with values, you know, throughout the years, throughout the decades, throughout the centuries, throughout thousands of years. We are people of the book. We were taught right from wrong. And that's been passed down from generation to generation. We were also taught you had to make a living and not to be dependent upon people because you never know what's going to be. And we're taught that every year in our Passover seders. But do we speak about it? No. But our moral leadership today, first of all, moral leadership does begin in the home. And it ends in the home. Yes, it can happen in the schools too. And unfortunately, our schools are also indoctrinating today. And it's shameful uh, because they don't want to learn or they want to go along to get along and just go along with whatever is being, what's ever comfortable in the marketplace today of ideas. Well, that's, that's one of the things that we as American Jews or Jews who were born in Holland who are now in America, I'm teasing up a little, we have to safeguard, we have to speak up and not just go along. And that's what our show is about. Uh, uh, encouraging people to speak up when you see people going against, I, I wouldn't use the word moral tide, but I would say going against what is uh, appropriate for uh, us in America today, the way we treat other people and the way we treat ourselves. Evelyn, do you want to ask another question? Now, can I can I just follow up? On that? I, but, but you know, it is a moral thing. You know, parents don't want to be parents; they want to be friends. Uh, rabbis just are worried about how many congregants they're going to get. So they're they're looking at it as a business instead of saying how many do I come to me. Instead of saying what do I need to, what should I be teaching? I've got a moral response. My job is a moral one. Am I instilling the moral values as parents, as teachers? Uh, are we just teaching what somebody gives us to teach? Or are we really thinking deeper? Think about what I said when you asked me earlier about what do I remember about my childhood? What I believe we learn in our formative years, that means in our young years, is what's going to stick with us for the rest of our lives unless we choose to change. So even if we were taught prejudices in our homes, you know, we can change. Uh, you know, it, when I was uh, 16 years old and I wanted to buy a car for myself, I had $200 and I knew I needed a car. So uh, my father said, buy a Beetle. And he said to me, you know, he's a, you know, and I said, but it's a, it's a German car. He says, you never blame the children for the acts of the parents. That was a wisdom that my father taught me. And I've never forgotten that. And the truth is, not only did I buy a, a 1957 Volkswagen with a hole in the floor for $200, but I still own a Mercedes today. And I still remember that. And nobody is perfect. Germany has not been perfect even since the war. Did they make mistakes? Sure. Do they still make mistakes? Yes. 
But you know what? We our moral leadership, regardless of where it is, in the home, in the school, in our churches, in our synagogues, in our mosques, have got to be teaching uh, the values that are going to make a difference. You know, so that's that's my belief. So, Barry, what what I find very interesting is the I'm learning here is the uh, the similarity of American and Jewish values. Yes. Um, and I can imagine that the founding fathers were Protestants, for as far as I know. Yes. So they had a, a good knowledge of the Old Testament. Yes. That's what Protestantism focuses on, on the Old Testament, maybe even more than on the New Testament. So they, they knew the Jewish texts, uh, the Jewish Bible. Um, and, and they worked what they knew from that into the American constitution is what you're saying. Yes. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind about that. None. So, so could you elaborate a little bit more on, on, on Jewish things that we find in the American values and constitution? Yes. Um, well, freedom of speech, you know, you think if anyone saw the movie, uh, Yentl, you know, the Barbra Streisand movie and you watch it, it, it and you see that the two, uh, rabbinic students arguing over the Torah. Well, if, if our Bible, you say, if why are they arguing? You know, isn't it absolutely true? Well, Jews have always argued. We continue to argue. Uh, <laughs> what's, what's the expression? If you get, you know, three Jews in a room, you get five opinions. And uh, if you get, you know, 10 Israeli generals, former generals, they all want to be prime minister because they all have a better way. Jewies, Jews have always questioned We've always questioned, and our our constitution was built that way. Uh, uh, freedom of speech, property ownership. Uh, you know, when people, if you read, you know, I want to go maybe take one giant step back. Uh, I can't say that I always believed in God because I didn't. I became a, a Rosarian, you know, for a period of time, for a couple of years, but never left the traditions of. Passover seders and high holidays and stuff. But that lasted until I realized that, you know, believing that everything can be okay if you believe it and I believe it. No, I don't want to go into that. But, uh, you know, D Judaism has certain values. And freedom of speech is a big deal. Uh, a property ownership. Uh, no one can do to me, you know, because they, uh, we, because I allow them to. If you read just the, the, the book of Genesis, and you read it and people say, well, how can you believe in a God? You know, how can you believe in God? If you read Genesis, you'd say, well, you really think man wrote that book? If if people just read just no other book but Genesis, you'd say it's impossible. How can you try to convert people to believe in a religion based upon that book? You'd say, you, you, come on, brothers killing brothers, you know, in some ugly things about you, the human condition. Just that book alone. And then when you go through the rest of it, you'd say, and then you read it every year, uh, it, it it hits you that there is a God. It doesn't talk about which club necessarily, which means which religion to believe in, which following to believe in. Uh, uh, I'm going to digress one more time. I know my grandson's going to be mad at me, but that's okay. Uh, in Germany, even, when you look at in Germany in the last century, in the 1920s, what did the reform movement in English, what did they call themselves? They didn't call themselves Jews or reformed Jews. They called themselves Germans are the mosaic persuasion. They wanted to get rid of this God thing. 
And to be honest with you, it's, it is all about believing that, remember, our rights don't come from man, come from government. They come from our creator. It's written in our documents. I mean, how many constitutions have lasted as long as America's constitution? None. Zero. It's powerful, but we've given it up. And that's what concerns me. But we need to study it. And there are a number of books which you can use to study our nation's constitution and even comparing it with our uh, uh, Torah, with our Bible. It's a very, very powerful document. Uh, to me, it doesn't matter which club, which religion, in other words, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, I don't care. I care about do we believe that our rights come from a creator? And uh, I believe they are God-given rights. Does that make me a hocus-pocus Jew? I'm not Orthodox. I'm a serious Jew. That's how I look at myself. And um, does that make everybody happy or comfortable? You know what? I'm comfortable with it. And uh, those around me, you know, know how I, what I believe. Uh, and uh, I'm, an, I'm an American, and I'm very proud of it. And I think what America has done to make the world, world a better place and to make other families, to make uh, you know, Blacks in America better. I mean, you take a look at what uh, people have done, to, what, what Jews have done specifically, to help form many of the uh, important Black organizations. Uh, it's important. Have we had prejudice in this country? Even up to the 1970s, there was Jewish limits into some of the, uh, you know, higher rated schools without me naming them. Okay. I'm to be kind. Yes. So, okay. Okay. So that's my point. So there is Judaism with, throughout our constitution, but we have to study it and the rights, the privileges, the responsibilities in our Bible are written throughout our constitution. As we wrap up, I, before we give you your chance to say your last words, are there organizations here in the United States that you would recommend for both Jews and non-Jews who help support the freedom that America stands for? Yeah. You know, there's a Reverend Hagee who uh, formed uh, Christians United for Israel, which is a terrific organization. I remember meeting him uh, a number of times, but I remember meeting him and his daughter in the White House uh, a number of years ago, I forgot exactly when, but uh, a special man. And uh, did he have to, I think in the 1970s, start this organization? Uh, people talk about Christians being anti-Jewish or anti-Israel. Look, there are people that are, there are Jews that are anti-Jewish and anti-Israel. Uh, he has done so many powerful things and important things and his words and how he's lived his life is so important. There are organizations like Stand With Us that basically fight the anti-Semitism on college campuses, and uh, in, in, it's even in high schools today and in junior highs, and we're doing a great uh, work. We have over 200 uh, attorneys throughout the country that are doing pro bono work, defending teachers and defending students with anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Israel that's taking place. Then there's APAC. APAC I support, and if people want just one reason, could talk about defaults, is it too left or too right? I'd say, remember one thing, in 90% of the congressional districts in this country, there is no Jewish community, 90%. So they don't have any skin in the game. So I support APAC for no other reason that reason, but they do important work. There's an organization called CAMERA, capital C-A-M-E-R-A, which republishes articles that are untruths about Judaism or about Israel, which uh, they write, and because none of us can read everything. 
and I think they do important work. Uh, there are synagogues that do support Israel, as she is, with her pimples. That's all they are in, in the scheme of things, uh, in comparison to everybody and anybody else. Uh, I would support Gatestone Institute. Uh, Nina Rosenwald, her grandfather, by the way, was one of the, a very, very important man. Yes, besides being a founder of Sears, he basically helped found uh, a number, I mean, many, many uh, black universities and schools throughout uh, our country. So, you know, Gates and Institute, the articles that Nina publishes are wonderful. Uh, and they're from people like Khaled Abu Tomei to Basim Tawil to many, Alan Dershowitz has been published in there. So she does, that's, it's wonderful. So those are the organizations that I like. There are others, by the way, I don't mean that, I know I'm going to be getting criticism of things that I didn't mention, but I apologize for that. I think the most important thing for, for people to do is to go to Israel themselves. Because when they go there and they see Muslims walking the streets fully dressed in their Muslim robe, when they see blacks, you know, as black as anything, and they're beautiful, uh, you know, walking the streets of Israel and uh, in government, in the military, as you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. When you realize that, I remember 1984, you know, 80% plus of Bethlehem used to be Christian. Today, what is it, 5% Bethlehem Christian? You don't hear any outrage about that. And I don't want to speak about why. I don't need to. Uh, you know, there's, you, you've got to go there and you see it, you experience it, you meet the people. I know I just read something months ago that said Israel is one of the uh, five happiest countries in the world. And you'd say for a nation that has to fight for its existence, at every turn in the road and say, how can they be happy? Because they are. Because if you live there, you're you're a happy person. People talk about, uh, you know, LGBTQ, you know, maybe Israel's not, you know, pro. I'd say if, if you're a Muslim and you are gay, the probably the only place in the Middle East that you can happily go to and, and, and be comfortable is in Israel. There's a gay parade in Tel Aviv every year. And there's even a gay parade in Jerusalem. Now, you know, should we be silent to that? I mean, it, it, that's the way Israel is. It's a yes, it's a it's a secular country, but it's a Jewish country. And even Jews that say they're secular, they still celebrate Shabbat together uh, with their families, and, and it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful experience. So, hopefully, I've answered that question. Yes, you have, and actually. Our time is up, and I think, unless you have really last words, that those were wonderful last words that you shared with us and very right. encouraging in terms of the state of the world today. Can I, can I just end with one thing, if you don't sure. mind? You know, understanding our place in the world as Jews is more critical now than it's ever been throughout my history, at least. Uh, and we... Each of us have at least one moment in our life when we can make a difference. And I believe we must do it now. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Phyllis. Thank you, Evelyn. And th sure. thank you. Thank you for all the inspiring things you said, Mary. Thank you. Yes, very, very uh, significant and, and compelling. And uh, we thank our listeners for listening. For those of you who have not yet seen Evelyn's documentary, Never Again Is Now, I highly recommend it. You can see it on Amazon or YouTube. 
You can learn more about my nonfiction Holocaust play at thinedgeofthewedge.com. And as we end every show, we say, without putting yourself in physical danger, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.